Amen. Amen. Awesome. Well, my name's Ben. I'm the pastor here, and we are a Christ-centered family that glorifies God by loving Him, loving others, and making disciples. Join us at the picnic today. Just wanted to throw that out. But now we're coming to the end of the book of Daniel, or close to the end of the book of Daniel, because chapters 10 through 12 is one vision. One great big apocalyptic vision at the end of the book, and I was wrestling over what I would do here. This is three chapters, almost 80 verses, so it's, because it's long, it seems silly to do it in one week, and yet, because it's one vision, it seems silly to break it up. We're breaking it up. We're doing chapter 10 today, and the reason why we're doing that is because, as Tracy so perfectly introduced a little bit ago, chapter 10, it focuses on a topic that the Bible mentions often, but speaks on clearly not very often. It's something that we see a lot, but it's not something that we get clear teaching on a lot. And I want to be clear, even as we go through this, this passage will not answer all of the questions that you have on this topic. The topic this morning is spiritual warfare from Daniel chapter 10. So what we're not doing is we're not coming into this saying, hey, let's get a, let's say everything there is to say on spiritual warfare. What we are saying is, hey, what does Daniel 10 tell us about spiritual warfare? And it's got three lessons that we can take from this passage and apply directly to our lives. And what does it look like to live in a world where there's both a physical and a spiritual realm? In Lamani, Ukraine, two women, uh, Olga and Helena, perfectly named for two old Ukrainian women, they're sitting on a bench, they're enjoying the spring sunshine, they're sharing a jar of pickles, when in the distance they can hear the rumble of uh, artillery. Russia is advancing on their town. They're not yet quite to their town. But the guns that they're hearing uh, fire, they're not the the Russians firing on them. Those are actually the Ukrainian guns firing back. Olga and Helena sitting on that park bench. Everything seems peaceful around them, but they are living in an active war zone. The Russians are advancing. Not far down the road towards the front, there's another town called Kotlariv, I believe, And there we meet a lady named Svetlana. And Svetlana walks down her street. She walks past houses where she, in the road where she grew up. And some of the houses people still live in. Some of the houses have been abandoned by the people who live there. And some of the houses have been hit. She can tell stories of the people who lived in those houses. She can tell stories about where she was and what she was doing when those bombs landed on those houses. And then in that town, we meet someone else. It's a man by the name of Leonid. And Leonid says something that I find chilling, uh, but something that a lot of Ukrainians are expressing in conversations with with reporters and, and people over the last few months. He says, after two months, it's a normal situation. In other words, even though they live in an active war zone, they just kind of get used to it. Bombs falling, ducking and covering, The reality of constantly knowing that life and death hangs in your balance every single day is just something that they get used to. And these Ukrainians, they give us a very present testimony of what it's like to live in an active war zone. You can't ignore its presence. You always hear those rumbles. Life and death hangs in the balance, yet after some time, you just get used to it. You start to believe that this is just the way it is. 
Now, we don't live in an active war zone in the sense that we do not hear artillery rumbling in the distance. Uh, We don't walk past bombed out houses. But we do live in a spiritual war zone. A spiritual war is happening all around us all the time. And just like Olga and Helena, we can't ignore its presence. If we have eyes to see it, there's evidence of this battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness all around us. Even if we can't see the war, we can hear the rumblings. Just like Svetlana, we know also that life and death hangs in the balance here. Spiritual life and spiritual death hangs in the balance. We see that simply by recalling the real-world wreckage that it leaves in its wake. And yet, like Leonid, we too sometimes just get used to it. We think, this is the way it is. This is the way it's always been. This is the way it's always going to be. And so as we start this final vision of the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 10, it is a prelude to this final vision, but it gives us a really interesting peek into the spiritual world at what it looks like for the kingdom of God to war against the kingdom of darkness. We're giving a look at the battle behind the battle. What's going on in the spiritual realm. And even though that battle behind the battle is blurry for us, it still is going to give us some clear takeaways, some clear lessons that we can apply as we don't only live amongst the battle, but take part in that battle. And so we're going to be careful. We're going to be careful to see what this passage says and to not see what this passage doesn't say. We're always in danger of misspeaking when we talk about things that the Bible doesn't tell us about clearly. And yet at the same time, we're going to be confident. Confident that whatever the Bible does say clearly, we can hold on to confidently, okay? So that's where we're going. We're talking about spiritual warfare from Daniel chapter 10, carefully and confidently. Let's pray. We'll dive in. Heavenly Father, your word is true. Nothing in your word is false. And so, Lord, as we look at it, we want to know what it says, confident that whatever it says is not only right, but applicable, relevant, helpful. It can help us know what it looks like to live for you in this world. God, we love you, and we pray that you be glorified by this. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. All right, let's, let's pause there. It's setting the stage for us. What do we see? Okay. The year is 536 BC. Daniel now in his 80s is in Persia. He's been there for a couple years, and he's seeing the beginning of the fourth and final vision in the book. And what he sees is a great conflict. I think the NIV actually translates this one better when it says a great war. A great war is what he's witnessing, both in the real world, but then also in the spiritual realm. He sees it, and he understands it. And he knows that this word is true. That means it's certain. It's accurate. It can be trusted. And it troubles him. Of course it does. The message is war is coming. War is coming is not good news. War is over is good news. 
People don't want war. People don't want war to come. They want war to leave. That's been the hope of Daniel and the people of God for a long time. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4 says that they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's talking about the day that the, the king of Israel reigns. That's what they're longing for. And so world peace, it's not just the hope of hippies and beauty queens. It's the hope of the people of God, both Old Testament and New. The war is bad news. Daniel sees wars coming. So in his mourning, he fasts. He neglects his personal hygiene. And we also see that he prays. We're going to see that more clearly in just a, a little bit. But he's fasting and he's praying. He's giving himself to that for three weeks. Join me again in verse 4, because there we're going to see that God notices. He takes notice of Daniel's prayer. On the 24th day of the first month, I was, I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl. His, his face was like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision. But a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone, and I saw this vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me upright and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. There you go. For now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. So for three weeks, Daniel is mourning. He's fasting. He's praying until this heavenly someone appears to him. And there's some debate about who this is. We're not going to slip down that rabbit hole. But some people say it's the Son of God radiating his glory, speaking as God. Some people say it's an angel reflecting God's glory and relaying God's words. Let's be clear that either way, no matter who it is, Daniel is getting an eyeful and an earful of the godness of God, right? He's getting an eyeful of his glory and an earful of his word. That's what's happening here. And yet I do want to show my cards. I think this is the Son of God. I think this is the Son of God because the description of this, well, if it is the pre-incarnate Christ, the uh, Jesus before he came, it seems awfully similar to the picture of the resurrected Christ that we see in Revelation chapter 1 where he's clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest, eyes like the flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze, voice like the roar of many waters, a face like the sun shining in full strength. I mean, doesn't that sound like the same guy? So I think it's Jesus. You can agree or not. But what he's seeing is the glory of God. What he's hearing is the word of God. That's for sure. And as Daniel falls to the ground, Jesus touches him. He speaks to him. And for the first of three times, he strengthens him. And as he speaks, this is what he says. Join me again in verse 12. I'm going to read to the end of the passage now. 
Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. So he's praying, and that's why he came. Verse 13. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the king of Persia. And, sorry, with the king of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O oh man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except Michael, your prince. And so this is an introduction, okay? When he says here, I'm about to tell you what's written in the book of truth, he's prefacing everything that's about to come in chapters 11 and, and 12. But here what we need to understand is this word prince, because obviously the word prince can and often does in Scripture refer to a person. But here in the context, it seems that this word prince isn't referring to a person. It's referring to angels. After all, we see that the angel Michael that we meet in Jude 9 and Revelation 12 here is called your prince. It's an angel that's fighting against the princes or the angels of these other kingdoms. This is a description of spiritual warfare, and if that fires a whole bunch of questions in your mind, join the club. If you have questions about how all this looks, ask someone else. They can't tell you either because it doesn't tell you in the Bible everything that you want to know. But it does have stuff for us to see still. We might not be able to answer every single question we have about the spiritual realm versus the physical realm and how all of that plays out, but there are some things we can learn. In this passage itself, this is what we see. I'll read verses 13, 20, and 21 again. That the prince, that's the angel of the kingdom of Persia, withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, angels, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia. Then he said, verse 20, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince, angel of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the, uh, the prince or angel of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is no one who contends by my side except, uh, against these except Michael, your prince, your angel. And so for the rest of our time, I'm going to pull out three lessons from this text. Three lessons about spiritual warfare that we le learn specifically from this passage. Because again, 
we could do a full survey of Scripture. We don't, we're not going to do that this morning. But Daniel does give us some things today that really do shape what it looks like for us to live in a physical realm when we know there's also things happening in a spiritual realm. And so lesson number one, spiritual warfare is a real thing. Spiritual warfare is a real thing. I'm not up here talking about it because it's my idea. I'm up here talking about it, it seems, because it's the Bible's idea. Because the right understanding of the reality of the universe is not only to understand the physical things in the universe, but also the spiritual things in the universe. And again, it doesn't tell us much. We still got questions. But it gives us plenty to go with. And what this passage shows us right on the surface is this. Listen carefully. There is a war going on in the spiritual realm that parallels and affects the affairs of this world. There is a war going on in the spiritual realm, a conflict, a battle, that parallels and affects the affairs of this world. What happens there in the spiritual realm has an impact on what happens here in the physical realm. And I struggle with that. Because as Tracy said a little bit ago, it just sounds weird. It sounds strange. It sounds like things people talk about that don't know what they're talking about, I guess. It's, it, it, it's hard to find good teaching on this stuff. What do we do with it all? Because I think that people will often take the little that the Bible does teach on these things and then fill in the gaps in our understanding with maybe assumptions or an overactive imagination, guesswork. And as a result, our beliefs about spiritual warfare are more shaped by what we might call Christian superstition than actual biblical truth. And yet, I'm confident that what this says is true. I'm confident that there's a war going on in the spiritual realm that parallels and affects the affairs of this realm, not only because the Bible says it, but for another reason as well. And I think you do too. Actually, I'm confident that if you're a Christian, you're confident of this <laughs> as well. Do you want to know why I say that? I'll give you one example of why. It's because you pray. We're going to talk more in prayer in just a little bit, but think about this. If you in the physical realm speak to your Father who lives in heaven in the spiritual realm, believing that he from the spiritual realm is able to help you here in the physical realm, then what you're showing me is that you believe that he can and that he does reach his fingers into this physical world and work. You're showing me that you believe that God is able to actually answer your prayers here in the here and the now. Because spiritual warfare, it's, it's a real thing. And this war is not like the war in the Ukraine that we can follow from a safe distance. Because if you're a follower of Christ, the reality is, we see here and we see elsewhere, you have picked your side. Just think about Ephesians chapter 6 that Tracy read a moment ago. 6, 11 through 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is our reality, not just Daniel's. Satan is not just our enemy, we are his. First Peter 5, he prowls, it says. Ephesians 6, 16, he throws flaming darts at us. Spiritual warfare is a real thing. And though he tempts us to sin, he, he tempts us to doubt, 
He tempts us to despair. He seeks, seeks to distract us from obedience. And sometimes people succumb. And we see the wreckage of that left in their faith and in their life as they fracture. And so the first lesson we need to take away from this passage, very simply, spiritual warfare is a real thing. But the second lesson we need to take from this passage is this. Yes, it's a real thing, and we take part in it. It's a real thing. The spiritual realm affects the physical realm, and we play a part in this battle. I wonder if you caught this. Daniel chapter 2, just a little bit before, Daniel was mourning for, it says, three weeks, okay? 21 days. He's fasting, and he's praying for three weeks. Jesus comes saying, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, in other words, before you, when you started to pray, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Daniel prayed. Jesus heard. Jesus came. And then he says this, verse 13, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Daniel prayed for three weeks. He prayed for 21 days. And victory over the prince of Persia came when? In three weeks. 21 days. Is that a coincidence? I, I, I don't think so. I think what the angel is coming to say is that in some way, Daniel's prayers played a part in this spiritual struggle. Daniel labored for that spiritual victory through his prayers. What's amazing is, is this, and, and listen closely. The war in the spiritual realm affects what happens here in the physical realm. And the prayers of God's people here in the physical realm affects what happens in the spiritual realm. Is that not crazy? Not only can the spiritual realm affect our world, but our prayers can affect it. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that the coolest thing you've ever heard? I think so. So, Christian, in this spiritual war, you're not just playing defense, you're playing offense. We're not only on our guard against the attacks of the enemy, we're also playing or praying down the strongholds of the enemy. Not only is he prowling for us, but we are marching under Jesus Christ's banner as we march on the gates of hell. And we do that on our knees. And so lesson number two, we take part in this battle. And it, at this point, I think it's easy and clear to say, Satan's not stupid. And so the last thing Satan wants is a billion-plus people who name the name of Christ on their knees fighting against him. And so it shouldn't surprise us that one of the most effective tactics of the enemy in the church today is to cause believers to waver in their prayers, right? This is something that Alistair Begg says. I'll, I'll read this quote to you. I don't have it up here. Listen, listen closely. He says this, Prayer is an acknowledgement that our need of God's help is not partial, but total. <laughs> Yet many of our church prayer meetings have dwindled in size and influence. Ultimately, the explanation can be traced to spiritual warfare. If, as the hymn writer says, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees, then we may be sure that he and his minions will be working hard to discredit the value of united prayer. The evil one has scored a great victory, 
in getting sincere believers to waver in their conviction that prayer is necessary and powerful. Spiritual warfare is a real thing, and in prayer, we take part in that battle. In his book, Center Church, Tim Keller, he writes about prayer and the place that, place that prayer plays uh, in revival, and he talks about uh, what he calls frontline prayer. And what he's talking about is how we pray differently in a war zone than we pray in a time of peace. And in a war zone, we pray for bigger things. We pray for protection. We pray for victory. We pray for endurance. We pray for advance. But in a time of peace, we tend to just pray for our felt needs. Whatever is happening in that moment, tomorrow's test, that job interview. And the reality is we should be praying for all things, big or small. I'm not discrediting that. But if we are in the midst of a spiritual warfare, of spiritual warfare, should we not pray like it? Should we not pray like we're actually on the front lines of a cosmic battle? Because we are. In frontline prayer, we pray requests that the gra- for the grace to confess our sin and humble ourselves. We pray for compassion and zeal for the flourishing of the church and the reaching of the lost. We pray for a yearning to know God, to see his face, and to glimpse his glory. So Christians, let's pray like we're on the front lines, because we are. Let's pray protection from the enemy, advance for his kingdom, continue to focus on the king. Because that's the kind of prayer we need in our place where we currently are. So Christian, join in the battle. Hit your knees and march with the king. If we want to fight temptation and overcome doubt, if we want to find hope and despair and cling to Christ when it feels like he's far from us, if we want our marriages restored, our kids to find the Lord, if we want doors opened in our community, hearts softened for the gospel, we got to pray. These are all the realms where spiritual warfare is played out. Will you not hit your knees for these things? And so lesson number one from this passage, spiritual warfare is a real thing. Lesson number two, we take part in the battle when we hit our knees. I want to invite you to join us for our prayer meeting first Sunday of every month. Um, It's always a small group, but it's always a sweet time. I always walk away coming into this time so ready to worship um, and feeling just a renewed sense of intimacy with the brothers and sisters I pray with. So put it in your calendar. Or heck, I'll text you, you know, just let me know. I will text you Sunday morning (laughs) by way of reminder. But join us for prayer. Let's make that an urgent, front lines agenda for our church as we live for Christ in this world. Spiritual warfare is a real, real thing. We take part in the battle. And then lesson number three, the end of the war is sure. The end of the war is sure. Daniel is given this vision of the great conflict, and it says that the word was true. It was sure. The future here, it seems, is not uncertain. That Jesus can come and he can tell what is to happen to your people or people in the latter days. He, can, he doesn't say what might happen to your people. He's telling what will happen to your people in the latter days. This is not a war where it could go either way. The end of this war is sure, and it's really important to notice that. Because many religious and worldviews world uh, see the world, we might say, in a dualistic way. 
Now, that's a way of, of saying that there's two equal and opposite forces warring against each other, pushing against each other. Sometimes one's prevailing, sometimes the other's prevailing. Sometimes good is winning, sometimes evil is winning. How's it going to end? We're just not sure. There's yin and there's yang, and who knows how this is all going to turn out. Which will win? We'll see. <laughs> the future could be black, it could be bright. We don't know. But the truth, thank God, is we don't live in a universe like that. We do not live in a dualistic universe. Yes, there's good and evil. Yes, God is good and Satan is evil. Yes, they are battling for supremacy. The fight is happened, but it is by no means a fair fight. I love the way that Sam Storms says this. He says, it's a simple matter of logic. Satan is an angel. All angels were created, therefore Satan was created. Satan is not the equal and opposite power of God. He is not eternal. His power is not infinite. He does not possess divine attributes. And some, he is no match for God. As humans, we can oppose God, right, for, for a while. We can shun him. We can, we can run from him. We can push him away. We can ignore him. But if the hound of heaven has your scent, he will find you. If the hound of heaven is determined to find you with his grace, he will put it upon you. And if we die without knowing him, we will face him after death in judgment. In the same way here, the prince of Persia, this angel, he's a created being. And yes, he could oppose God for a while. But the end of the battle was never in doubt. And God knows what is to come through history, as we'll see in the weeks to come. But even today, we can look to the future. And know that this great battle that's raging around us, it too has an end. And the end of that battle is not in doubt either. Let me read to you from Revelation 17, oh, sorry, 12, verses 7 through 9. We see the ultimate end of the spiritual battle. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, that's Satan, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver for the whole world, sorry, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. We do not live in a universe of equal and opposite powers. That's good news. We live in a universe where the good God is the Almighty God. We live in a universe where the Almighty God, the good one, will win. It's not in doubt. That's how it's going to end. Spiritual warfare. It's not something to fear because we know how the story ends. Or just to use the words of, of Martin Luther, for though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we shall not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure. Why? For lo, his doom is sure. 
One little word shall fell him. What's that little word? It's the living word. Jesus Christ. And we don't have to wonder if he will win the battle. He's already dealt the death blow at the cross. The power of sin, the power of death, the power of the devil has already been cut off at the knees at the cross. He is bleeding out today. And so, yes, spiritual warfare is a real thing. Yes, we take part in the battle. But the end of the war is sure. So, Christian, in this war, fight on your knees. Fight, but do not fear. When temptation comes, fight. Fight for righteousness. Fight for holiness, but do not fear. When you feel hopeless and helpless, fight for the joy of Christ. Fight for confidence in him on your knees, but do not fear. When people who don't know him reject him, fight on your knees for their open hearts. Fight, but do not fear. And when others, brothers and sisters, fall, fight for them on your knees. Call them back to Christ. Fight, but do not fear. If there is a spiritual war, and if we have a place in this war, and if we know how this will all end, Christian, fight, but do not fear. And if you're a believer, I, I've really, or not a believer, I should say, I have good news for you as well. Yes, there is a spiritual battle for your soul, but in Jesus, you have no need to fear. In Jesus, if you are in Jesus, if you come to trust in him, there is no need for fear. Because I don't know what your heart longs for. I don't know everyone here today, for those of you who don't know Christ, I don't know what it is your heart deeply longs for, the, the deepest desires of your heart. Maybe it's a longing for love. But what you found in this world is that as you seek for love in different ways and different people, the love that you've found always comes with a caveat. It never quite fulfills in the ways that you hope for it to. Or maybe uh, what your deepest desire is, you, so you're longing for freedom from shame. You know you've done terrible things. You, you're wracked with the guilt of that. And that self-condemnation, no matter how much self-talk you, you employ, it just will not leave you alone. Or maybe what you deeply long for is just joy. And so you're seeking joy in so many different places. Whatever place you can find it, you run to it. Finding joy in places, but finding that that joy doesn't last for long. That what was shiny becomes dull overnight. Or maybe what you're looking for is value, a, a purpose, your identity. And again, find that no amount of positive thinking is enough to make you believe that you are actually good and worthy and valuable in any way. What, what I beg you, no matter where you are, no matter what you're looking for and longing for, what I pray for you is that you would come to know and come to believe that whatever it is that your heart desires, you can find in Jesus Christ. He offers a love that is eternal. Shame that is erased. Joy unfading. Identity secure. And life everlasting. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn from sin. Turn to him. And you will find all these things and so much more. Spiritual warfare is real. 
we have a part to play in this battle, but the end of the war is sure, and at the end of the war, Jesus is on his throne. Thank you for coming, worshiping with us today. We pray you will repent and believe and find life in his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the hope that we have is not shaky. It's not something that we have to cross our fingers for. We know how the story ends. We know your kingdom wins. We know that one day it will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so, Father, we pray that even now in our time, you would give us eyes to see that warfare, the courage to fight in that war with love, with patience, with compassion, but also with conviction. And that we would do so not fearfully, but at rest, knowing that in the end, you will reign and we will be standing beside you in glory, in joy, in love for eternity. We love you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.